All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And to Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You have informed us of so many different things related to our original condition as fallen, sinful, spiritually dead, corrupt human beings, yet still in your image and likeness. And you have revealed to us your perfect plan of salvation as it has progressively been revealed from the time of the Garden of Eden to the present time and for the completed canon of Scripture that we have. And, Father, as we study your word, we come to understand all the dimensions of your plan and what you've provided for us and what is ours in Christ, especially in this study of Ephesians. Now, Father, we pray that as we focus again on this study of redemption and forgiveness, that you would help us to see the importance of what we have in Christ and how that is to be transformed into the way we deal with one another and ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1 as we go forward talking about redemption, forgiveness, and grace. In Ephesians 1.7, as we studied last time, The Apostle Paul wrote, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Last time we focused on the meaning of redemption. Redemption is a word that is not necessarily in common use today, and especially the way in which it is used in the Scripture The idea of redemption in its core meaning is integral to understanding the work of Christ on the cross, especially in relation to God the Father. So just in way of summary and a few points, first of all, the emphasis in this passage, in that opening line, in him we have redemption, emphasizes our present reality a present ongoing state of being redeemed and knowing that we are redeemed. We continue to have redemption. It is our possession, whether we understand it, whether we feel like it, whether we are believing it now or not. It is what we have in Christ, our possession, because of our position in him. That occurs at the instant of salvation. 
But the foundation of redemption is not what happened when you and I trusted Christ as Savior. That's when we realize that in our experience. But the payment of the price occurred historically in A.D. 33 when Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Jews and the Romans at Golgotha. And it was at that time that he paid the penalty for sin so that the primary aspect of that payment is really Godward. It is directed toward God. It is the payment of a penalty. The penalty is one that was established and assessed by God before Adam and Eve disobeyed him. God said, the instant you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. That established the, the penalty that would be instantaneous at the instant they ate of that fruit. That tells us, first of all, that it wasn't physical death because Adam did not die for another 930 years. But there was something that happened instantly, and it involved a separation from God, a breach in the rapport that they had had with God, and that is the essence of spiritual death. It is separation from God. And so the penalty, that legal penalty for sin had to be paid for. This is what transpired on the cross. Jesus Christ paid that penalty, so that is Godward. It saw, it, it resolved that legal penalty that was assessed against every human being, and therefore that penalty is no longer the issue. Now, that doesn't mean we're automatically saved because we're still born spiritually dead. We still have a lack of righteousness. But the legal penalty, the foundational penalty, is that which was paid for by Christ on the cross. And this is what is uh, emphasized in, let me see, I have it here. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or without spot. The price that was paid is expressed through that phrase, through his blood. That was the price, and it means his death. Not his physical death. The shedding of blood relates to a certain kind of violent physical death, but it stands also as a metaphor for what transpired in his spiritual death, which occurred between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when he was separated from God the Father. So in this opening phrase, he's Paul is emphasizing the fact that we now possess this. It is our reality in terms of our position in Christ. Now, the second thing that, he, that we emphasized last time and spent some time on is that both the Hebrew and the Greek words emphasize the payment of a price for the purpose of deliverance, the release from bondage, and it's also used at times for someone being released from a debt. In the Hebrew, there's another word that is used for redemption, and it is uh, the the verb 
uh, Gael, which is important for the noun Goel, referring to the Redeemer, the one who is a kinsman Redeemer. Now, when we look at the word that is used for redemption here in this passage, it is the word apolutrosis. There are different words, several different words we looked at last time that express this idea of the payment of a price. So whenever you think of the word redemption, you ought to think of a price is paid, but it's paid with an idea towards the release of a person who is in bondage. That's that's the idea. You cannot really separate those two ideas. In fact, uh, many argue that this this word, that the emphasis would be on the release, but not at the expense of losing sight of the payment of the price. Now, that's really important when we get into understanding uh, the significance of this whole introduction. So we have redemption through his blood, and this is absolutely parallel to the Colossians 1.14 statement, which is identical in whom we have redemption uh, through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Now, there are different words, as I pointed out. Apalutrosis is built on some of those. The root word was a word, luo, which has the idea of a release, and so you have different nouns and different uh, verbs with different prepositions which bring out different aspects of that redemption which I talked about last time. Harold Honer, his expansive commentary on Ephesians, makes the comment that it has the idea of uh, release on the receipt of ransom, not simply the idea of the payment of the ra- ransom. Now, there are a lot of things that Honer says in there that I'm not quite in agree- agreement with. He's a good deal a little more Calvinistic than I am. But uh, Dr. Honer was the head of the New Testament Department at Dallas Seminary for, I don't know, maybe 35 or 40 years and taught the Ephesians course, which is a second-year, second-semester exegetical course that every student had to take. And so he had probably more... Uh, real study time on Ephesians than most commentators, and so it is considered one of the best, but that doesn't mean that he's right. Even when you're walking by the Spirit, by the way, that doesn't mean that when you study and come to conclusions, it's a guarantee of your results. That surprises some people. I hear people say, well, how can two people who are both, two pastors who are both uh, filled by means of the Spirit come up with different conclusions? Because the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit isn't an inspiration ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It is for the purpose of the spiritual life, not for the purpose of being able to speak inerrantly ex cathedra. Unless, of course, you hold to And I think that's a new thought for some people. What's the role of the Spirit in the Christian's life? It is the Christian way of life. It is not a guarantee that when you have studied in fellowship with the Lord that your results are going to be absolutely perfect. We all know pastors who have changed, refined, improved their understanding of the Word over the course of 20, 30, 40, or 50 years of pulpit ministry. And so... Uh, it is important to read and study and to think, and each generation seems to refine 
and improve on what they were taught if they are truly doing it doing it well. Sometimes they reverse and go in the other other direction. But the emphasis is on this payment, the, the release that comes from a payment of a price, but it always has that idea of a payment of a price. Now, that's, that is really important. Now, in the conclusion, I pointed out that the implication of redemption for us in the spiritual life is that it should transform the way we live. This is what we see in um, in the Scripture talking in Corinthians that we have been bought with a price, therefore we are not our own. And as Paul develops that idea in Romans chapter 6, we are born slaves of sin, slaves of our sin nature, but in the baptism by the Holy Spirit, that tyranny of the sin nature is broken so that we are able now to live as servants of righteousness. So it's up to our volition whether we're going to re-enslave ourselves to our sin nature or whether we are going to walk by means of the Spirit as and serve the Lord as servants of righteousness. Now, the next thing that we have to understand in this verse is the phrase, the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption, comma, the forgiveness of sins, comma. The commas in English, they're not there in the Greek because they didn't use punctuation like that. It's indicated by the syntax. The phrase is set off from the main subject, redemption, as an appositional phrase. Now, there we go, getting technical in grammar again. An appositional phrase is a phrase that further explains or may slightly expand or emphasize one aspect of the first noun. Okay, now I've developed this little chart. Whenever you're talking about a noun, a word, a person, a thing, there are lots of attributes that one could mention about a person or a thing or an animal or what, whatever is part of that the concept of the noun. But what the appositional phrase will do is zero in on one of those attributes so that you know what you're talking about and clarifying the and narrowing down the focus of, of the subject. For example, if we are talking about George Washington, there's all kinds of things that you could mention about George Washington, everything from his military career to his career as a, a plantation owner to his personal life. But when you say George Washington, the first president of the United States, you know that what you're going to say about George Washington is going to be in relation to that which is emphasized in the appositional phrase. So one of many attributes, that's the point of the chart there, you can say all of these different things, but there's one attribute that is being emphasized for the purpose of narrowing the focus in the sentence. We could say something about Martin Luther, a lot of different things that you could say about Martin Luther. But in this sentence, Martin Luther, the initiator of the Protestant Reformation, became the founder of the denomination named for him. 
So the appositional phrase narrows the focus down to that part of his life that was related to the Reformation, the theological impact that came as he recovered the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So that when we look at this phrase, the uh, redemption, the forgiveness of sin, we're not looking at two contrasting or even different ideas that are expressed there. That the forgiveness of sin is part of the broader concept of redemption. But by saying it this way, Paul is telling us he's focusing in on one particular aspect of forgiveness. So if we look at one particular aspect of redemption, so if we have that broad circle there, as a, as a covering all of the different things one could say about redemption, one of the subsets of the ideas of redemption relates to forgiveness. And this isn't always so clear in the English usage of the words, although if you drill down in the dictionary you can discover it. It is clear in the use of the two different Greek words that are used for forgive. The first word is the word that is used here in the verb form, uh, which is afiemi, or it's used here in the noun form, aphesis. But the verb form means to let something go, to release it, to cancel it, to remit, to leave, or to forgive. And it is often used in an economic sense of forgiving a debt. Now, remember, redemption has to do with the payment of a price to release someone, so it has that same financial nuance of the canceling of a debt without leaving aside the idea of of a payment of a price. So both of these words emphasize that idea of the canceling of a debt, and the assumption there is in some sense somebody's paying that debt. It emphasizes the act of forgiveness, the canceling of the debt. Now, the second word that we find in the New Testament that is translated forgive or forgiveness is the verb charizomai. Later on, we will find this in Ephesians 4.32 when we are uh, commanded to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Okay? So that is an important word, but it is used for the forgiveness of a debt. So both afiemi and charizomai have this idea of canceling a debt. They're used that way. So if you have a mortgage and somebody pays it off for you, then that debt has been canceled. If you uh, owe somebody something because of something they've done for you and that is that is forgiven, then that debt is canceled. So it's something done out of grace. So the root of charizomai is the Greek noun charis, which is the word for grace. So charizomai literally means to be gracious to somebody. But it is used for this same sense of forgiveness, for canceling of a debt, but it is emphasizing the attitude that underlies it, which is the attitude of grace. You're not doing it uh, with some sort of 
condition attached to it. It's being done freely uh, on the basis of kindness, and that's how it's used in Ephesians 4.32, literally be kind to one another by forgiving one another, as we will see. In Luke 7.42, Jesus gives a parable, talks about various uh, servants who have incurred debt and said uh, to the master, and then he concludes and he says, when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. But which of them will love him more? And the point of the parable is the one who's forgiven more, the one who's forgiven less. And there he uses that word charizomai. So it's clearly used as in, in a financial sense of forgiving a, of forgiving a debt. So we have this showing up in our parallel passage in Colossians chapter 2. I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, where we get a very clear understanding of the relation of forgiveness to the cross. Now, it's important to do this because there are different ways in which forgiveness is related to the cross. The way that we are studying in Ephesians 1.7 and in Colossians 1.14 has to do with the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Therefore, that is clearly talking about positional forgiveness. But when we ask the question, when did forgiveness occur, Colossians 2, 12 to 14 tells us when that occurred. So this is interesting. He says in Colossians 2, 13, and you, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, it might seem when we are reading that, that this occurred at the time that we trusted Christ as Savior, because that is the time when we are made alive together with him. But when we get into the Greek, and this is one of the passages I like to use as an illustration of why it's important to know the Greek, is because there are these participles here, it's a long sentence, and you have these participles, and participles, in this case, modify verbs and tell us additional information in relation to how that verbal action transpired. In other words, how did forgiveness take place, when did it take place, and what were, what were its characteristics? Now, the word used here is charizomai. It is grammatically an aorist active participle. Now, the important thing whenever you look at a sentence is to identify your finite verbs. Uh, that's your main action verb, and your main action verb here is he has made alive. That's also an aorist tense, and so understanding the grammar of a participle means that if it's a present tense verb, it, a present tense participle, then it is the timing is as, at the same time as that of the main verb. 
But if it's eris, which is a past tense, what the writer is saying is that this action in the participle preceded the action in the main verb. If the main verb is aorist, as it is here, sometimes it can be simultaneous. So you have to really look at the context. So this, in my opinion, is one of the most important passages for Christians to get their mental arms around. There are so many people today who just don't understand forgiveness. And there are so many people who have gone through events in their lives where they realize that... that um, uh, that that something horrible happened to them, and they may or they did something horrible, and they continue to be filled with shame and guilt, and this really limits their spiritual life because they have a hard time accepting God's forgiveness. If you're not accepting God's forgiveness, then you don't believe God when He says you're forgiven, and that's just an ongoing sin that is debilitating to spiritual life. And yet we live in a world today because of the uh, sensuality of our culture that many things have happened, some bad things and have happened to people, and some have just engaged in some uh, perverted sins and other things that they have a hard time accepting God's forgiveness. And so it's so important to understand how, how and why God forgives us. So... This word that's translated forgiven means to give something freely or graciously. That's its core meaning. So it's not because we've earned it or deserved it, because we don't earn it or deserve it. And frankly, if all of us came to grips with how sinful we are, we would all be filled with remorse and shame and horror and and, and how in the world could anybody ever love us or forgive us if they really knew us? And God knows you better than you know yourself. So it's all unearned and undeserved. Second, it has a meaning, as I just pointed out, of canceling a sum of money or a debt that is owed. And the debt that is owed in this context is the debt of the sin penalty. We'll see that in the next verse. And then the third thing it it has as an application of the idea of canceling a debt is to forgive or to pardon an action. And so essentially what we read here is, and I'm going to expand on the translation a little bit, and you, that is you as a believer, when, looking at the past, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And the word that is translated uh, when you were dead is, is a participle, but it should be understood as a temporal participle. He's looking back to that time when you were spiritually dead, when I was spiritually dead, and it's parallel to Ephesians 2.1 that says the same thing when we were dead, and there it's in our trespasses and sins. Here it's trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. Uh, but it's the same idea. We were spiritually dead, we were born that way, and we were separated from God. And then he says, he has made alive together with him. That's just one word in Greek. And it is an aorist, um, uh, aorist active indicative. So that's your main verb. So these two participles modify that, that main verb. The first one tells us what our condition was prior to being made alive, that we were spiritually dead, and therefore uh, we were obnoxious to God. And the second one tells us 
the circumstances that were necessary to be solved to make us alive together with him. And so that is uh, a, a, an aorist uh, passive participle, and it precedes the action of that main verb. So he forgives us of all trespasses by making us, before he makes us alive. So making us alive together with him is regeneration. We're being born again. But that forgiveness of all trespasses precedes that. Well, how long before does it precede it? Uh, a couple of seconds, a couple of minutes, a couple of days, a couple of centuries? When we look at the context, we'll find out that it occurred at the cross. Not when we trust Christ as Savior. This is that objective forgiveness that is provided for every human being, the cancellation of the sin penalty that occurred at the cross. So in this slide, if you can read it, I tried to expand out these three verses to give us a better sense of what is going on here. He really begins the thought in verse 12, in him, again, to the Colossians, and the letter to the Colossians was written about the same time as the epistle to the Ephesians, and both were considered to be cyclical epistles. That is, they, they not only went to the church they were addressed to, but they were to be passed around to these other churches that were in western Turkey in the same geographical vicinity of the seven uh, churches mentioned at the beginning of Revelation. So he begins and says, In him you were baptized when, you, it's again a participle, so you have to supply these temporal words, you were baptized when you were buried with him in baptism. Now this occurred at the instant we believed. Romans 6, 3 through 6 talks about the fact that at the instant of salvation we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's called the baptism by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about literal water baptism, believer's baptism, or any of the other six forms of baptism in the, uh, in the New Testament. In him you were baptized at the instant of faith in Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which, or by which probably, by which that is that baptism by the Spirit, you were raised together with him. And Paul says in Romans 6, 3 through 6, we were raised uh, to newness of life. So that's what happens at phase one. When we're justified we're, and we're forgive, we realize that forgiveness, we're made new creatures in Christ and we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that we are raised to newness of life. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, as I've just explained, and you, that is, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, that is a term that would be tantamount to saying spiritually dead, uh, and it could, because it's talking about spiritual circumcision, not physical circumcision. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, he made you alive together with him. See, it's past tense because he's referring to their salvation, which was several years before. You were, he made you alive together with him 
because he forgave you all trespasses. So that's, that's the idea. It's explaining the cause. Why could he make you alive? Because previously he had forgiven you of all trespasses. And then when we look at verse 14, we see there's another participle there. I've highlighted in the box that when it's, and it has to do with he canceled the debt of sin. And so that, to clarify it would be because he forgave you all trespasses when he had canceled the certificate of the debt. Now, when did he cancel that? When you believed in Jesus? That's not what the last line says. The last line says, when he nailed it to the cross. He nails it to the cross figuratively when Jesus Christ bears our sin in his own body on the cross during that period from 12 noon to 3 p.m. when the sins of the world are imputed to him. So what this is talking about is a what I have called a legal or forensic forgiveness. We ought to all understand the word forensic now. We've watched all these shows from NCIS to CSU, ad infinitum, and so forensic science, criminal science, is something that uh, is a word that's that's familiar to us. It has forensic has to do with legal issues, and the legal penalty against us is spiritual death. And so what happens at the cross is that legal penalty is canceled. Are you still born spiritually dead? Yes, that's what he said in verse 13. You were born spiritually dead. That's the effect of what Adam and Eve did. But the legal penalty is now canceled. It was nailed to the cross. So this is the first category of forgiveness that we have in the scripture it is a forgiveness that is directed toward god where the justice of god cancels the debt of sin or the sin penalty so it is done for everybody without exception colossians 2:13 and 14 then we look at the second category of forgiveness which is positional forgiveness. This is what happens to us experientially. This is the man word, or if you want to make it more personal, the me word aspect of forgiveness, that my sin penalty is canceled at the cross when it's nailed to the cross in A.D. 33, but I realize that experientially when I trust in Christ as Savior. At the instant that I trust in Christ as Savior, I am forgiven. It's based on the redemption that occurred at the cross. The redemption is the payment of that price that canceled the debt. But it's realized in my experience when I trust in Christ as Savior. So I am positionally forgiven. Now, that's going to be important for us to understand some different aspects when we look at a verse such as 1 John 1, 7, which says that the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. Some people stop reading 1 John 1 there, and they think, well, that means that, that no matter what I do, the blood of Christ or his death applies, and I'm just automatically cleansed of sin, and I don't need to confess sin. We'll look at that in just a minute. This is our position. We cannot 
confuse the positional reality of being in a state of positional cleansing. We're also in a state of positional righteousness because we possess the righteousness of Christ. But we can sin and become carnal. And when we sin and we are ruled by the sin nature, we're not walking by the Spirit anymore, according to Galatians 5, 16. We are walking according to the sin nature. Paul uses a slightly different language. In Romans chapter 8, he talks about walking according to the Spirit or walking according to the flesh. But the idea is the same. But positionally, in Christ, we are redeemed, and as such, we are forgiven. Now, the third way that we talk about forgiveness is our experience in terms of our relationship with God. Positional relationship is like your relationship in a family. You are born into a family. You will always be in that family, even though if you behave certain ways, you may not have much rapport with your parents, that rapport, that intimate relationship with them uh, may not at all be uh, what you would like it to be because of your disobedient behavior. But then when that is resolved, usually through confession and uh, dealing with it, maybe through some discipline, then there is a restoration of rapport. That's what we're talking about here in terms of our day-to-day experience or enjoyment of fellowship, that partnership. That koinonia also has that sense of partnership, and it is a partnership in which we are partnering with God in our spiritual life. When we break fellowship, then that uh, rapport, that partnering with God, enjoying having the real joy of our salvation isn't there. So we are to confess sin. Uh, John puts it in a conditional clause. He says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's an important verse. I'll come back to it in just a minute. And then the fourth area is what I call relational forgiveness. Because of those understanding those first three, we are then able to forgive others. Now, people have a lot of problems with forgiving others. Sometimes people have done really horrible things to us. Sometimes they have betrayed us in certain ways. Sometimes they may have uh, committed certain actions against them. And in wisdom, we don't put ourselves back under their uh, control or put ourselves in a position where they can just do it again and again and again. Forgiveness is different from consequences. Americans have a real hard time with that concept. Somebody goes to prison and they've they become a believer in prison and we want to say, okay, now you can get out. Well, they broke the law. That is in the sphere of civil government and they have to pay that penalty that is different from committing sin, which is against God, and being forgiven of that sin. And the two are not, do not uh, counteract one another. So forgiving one another means it's tantamount to the verse I started off with last, last week, that when Christ is on the cross 
and he prays to the Father, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He's saying to not to hold this against them in a special way. Okay? Now, they have not trusted in God. They have not believed in Christ. They have not done anything that would bring about the second or third categories of forgiveness. But there is a sense in which they are forgiven objectively by God when their sin penalty was canceled. So we too can forgive others without necessarily putting ourselves in a position of vulnerability toward that person who sinned against us. And what that does is, in in our human experience, it enables us to get out from under the attitudes of vindictiveness or fear or shame or resentment or any of the mental, other mental attitude sins that can go along with it so that we can uh, let them, let that go. That doesn't mean that we have to wait necessarily for them to come and apologize or make things right. It is an objective forgiveness in that sense that releases us from trying to hold them accountable for whatever sin they have, uh, they've engaged in. Now, 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, that's an experiential term. Walking in the light is our experience of walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, living the Christian life. If we walk in the light, and the light is a term that implies both uh, holiness in the sense of righteous purity, so this would be experiential righteousness, but also in the light of the revelation of God's word. We are, as Jesus prayed in John 17, we are sanctified by means of the truth, by means of the word. So by walking in the light, we are walking with the Lord. We're walking by the Spirit in the light of his word, and we have fellowship with one another. That's with one another who are also walking by the Holy Spirit. Our fellowship primarily is with God, and when we're walking in the light, which is in relation to God, then that enables us to have Christian fellowship with others, which isn't just having a good social life with other Christians, but a social life that is centered on our relationship with the Lord and our spiritual growth. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the foundation for all forgiveness and for the spiritual life is because the blood of Christ is the forensic foundation and the positional reality of every believer. But if that meant that we are automatically cleansed of every sin and we were not to confess sin, then why do we have 1 John 1, 9, just two verses later? Did, did John forget what he said in 1 John 1, 7? Now, there used to be a guy named Bob George who was on the radio in Dallas back when I was in seminary in the 70s and in the 80s, and he just, this was his hobby horse. And he was always going after people who thought that 1 John 1, 9 meant that you need to confess your sin. 
But one of the things you learn in as you study First John is that there's only two ways to interpret First John. In First John, John is contrasting two groups of people. Now, you either take it as those two groups of people are believers versus unbelievers, and so you have descriptions of what believers do versus descriptions of what unbelievers do. And if you take that view, that's the Reformed or Calvinistic interpretation, that is the Lordship interpretation, then you've got a lot of other theological problems. The only other way to take the first epistle of John is that it is contrasting two types of believers, those who are walking in the light and those who are not walking in the light, those who are enjoying their relationship with God and growing to spiritual maturity and those who are not, the contrast between spiritually growing believers and believers who are dominated by their sin nature. And so... When you contrast this, and we look at 1 John 1, 8, John is saying, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That doesn't mean you're not a believer. That means you're living according to a lie that you somehow could reach spiritual perfection or you're, you're, you're not sinning. And so the truth, that is, when Jesus says your word is truth, then we're not living a life in accord with the word of God. But in contrast, he says, if we confess our sins instead of denying that we're sinful, or in this case, saying, well, Jesus, we, we confuse positional truth with experiential truth, and we say, well, the blood of Christ continually cleanses me for all sin, so I don't have to think about it. Now, I've always heard people say, and some people are just really subjective and self-absorbed, and they say, I just hate having to constantly think about the fact that I've, I've sinned and always trying to remember all my sins. Well, first of all, you don't have to remember all your sins. You just have to remember the ones that immediately come to mind and admit those, and instantly you're forgiven of those and then cleansed from everything else. But it's not a recipe for self-absorbed guilt and remorse, which is how some people have interpreted it. It is, though, a serious, objective evaluation of where you are spiritually. There are times when you're driving down the highway and you need to verbalize a very quick prayer, and so uh, your confession is going to be rather quick and rapid. But that should be predicated on the fact that you're regularly keeping close accounts with the Lord and that you have in your personal prayer time a more focused, objective time where you are uh, following the examples of David in Psalm 32 or Psalm 51, where you're look, examining your life and admitting or acknowledging uh, your sin. So 1 John 1.9 tells us that we are to confess our sin. Well, if 1 John 1.7 says that we're automatically cleansed and you don't need to confess your sin, Bob George never answered the obvious question is, why is 1 John 1.9 even there then? And that's usually ignored. I've never heard anybody attempt to answer it. But the only answer is when they say, well, confessing your sin is another way of talking about believing in Jesus and admitting you're a sinner and you need to believe in Christ. Except nowhere in Scripture does it say you need to admit you're a sinner before you believe in Christ. And if you interpret the verse that way, then you've jumped over and you're interpreting it according to the view that this is a contrast between unbelievers and believers. 
So it creates a whole series of hermeneutical traps. So we are to confess our sin. That is the third category of forgiveness, our relationship with God, our experiential relationship. And then in Ephesians 4.32, the command is to be kind to one another, and that is further explained as being tenderhearted and by forgiving one another. It's a participle there indicating a means, and that is one way we express our kindness to one another is by forgiving one another. And the standard is just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, that gets really hard for a lot of people because there are some people who just have difficulty forgiving other people. But we constantly have to go to the cross and say that if we're going to be Christ-like, and that is what God's focus is on conforming us to the image of Christ, we're to be Christ-like, then we have to get a handle on this and, and let these things go. That doesn't necessarily mean that you put yourself back into a state of extreme vulnerability to let somebody abuse you or whatever else it might be. So in concluding Ephesians 1.7, the redemption that we have through his blood, that's the objective payment and cancellation of sin at the cross, which is realized when we trust in Christ. At that point, it is ours experientially in, or positionally in him, and we have positional forgiveness because that debt has been canceled. And this is all according to a standard. The standard is the grace of God, the riches of God's grace. We don't merit it. We don't do anything to bargain with God to get it. It's free. We can't do anything to earn it or to deserve it. It is God's grace. He just freely gives it. He overloads it on us, and we are just uh, the beneficiaries of all of God's goodness given to us, and we don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. Our, the slate is wiped clean. Our, our position in relation to God has changed. We've been reconciled to him. God's character has been satisfied through the propitiatory work of Christ on the cross. And we have this real forgiveness. And so that sin is not an, not an issue for us at all. So we'll come back next time to look at the verse 8 and following as we continue to look at what we have now in Christ in this opening eulogy. Father, thank you for what we studied. Thank you for our, your grace. It's overwhelming. It is more than we could ever imagine. It is free to us, though it was not free to you. It cost the payment of that sin penalty by your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, where he paid the penalty in full so that all we need to do is simply trust in him to accept it as ours, and at that instant we're given eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here or anyone listening, that they would uh, they would come to understand the truth of this and that if they have never believed in Jesus, that they would understand that's the only issue, is trusting in him for eternal salvation. For the rest of us, may we realize that because we are forgiven, 
we can forgive ourselves, we can forgive others, and we can enjoy a close, intimate relationship with you because we have been bought with a price, and therefore we are to live for you, to glorify you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing hymn. It's hymn number 12, Holy God, We praise thy name, and I'm going to ask Greg Freehoff if he would please come up to dismiss us in closing prayer. Please stand, hymn number 12.